Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Grace and peace be with all of us gathered in this hour of worship. That was an amazing day that we had last Sunday at our mobilization fair. I'm grateful for a little video reminder of the excitement that day. If you took part in that day, I want to just take a moment in the context of worship to say to you, thank you. Thank you to all the booth operators, if you hosted a table, if you welcomed, if you greeted, if you helped process members who were interested in learning more about the service that they can offer their church, thank you. This week has been about follow-up and it continues. If you signed up to say, I want to know more about this particular ministry or mission in the church, we've reached out to you to let you know this week about upcoming training events, orientation opportunities, so you can onboard and become a part of some very special ministries and the overall mission of this church. Listen, did you miss it last week? I mean, were you, were you maybe out of town or, or you had something happening? Maybe you were under the weather and you couldn't come and you feel this morning a little bit like Thomas on resurrection morning? You know, he wasn't there that morning and all the guys were like, oh, it was amazing, you should have been there. And he was like, no, no, seriously, no, really, I, I had some problems in there. No, in, in the text, in John's gospel, the tense of the verbiage in the language there is an ongoing action. It means they, the text says they kept on and on and on saying, no, it was awesome, he's alive. And he's like, I won't believe until I can put my hands on him myself, until I can see for myself. Well, if you feel a little bit like Thomas, because you've heard about the buzz going on last weekend here all throughout our campus, good news for you. For the next three weeks, right outside of our worship venues, in traditional and in contemporary, there is what we are calling mobilization stations. We have members of our mobilization council who will be hosting those tables right after worship each week. And they will have all the information that you may have missed last week. And you'll have the opportunity to learn about all of the ways that you can plug in and use your gifts and talents and abilities and passions here at JCBC. They're going to tell you about a website that you can go to right away that lists every single one of our known open opportunities for service in this church and beyond. And every quarter we change and update that so that you know how many opportunities await your willingness to be a part of what God is up to here. They're also going to take up a card from you. Last week, many of you filled out a mobilization card. I want you to understand the significance of this card in our overall mobilization strategy at JCBC. See, our hope is to create a database of, I'm just gonna call it a database of awareness. And this card asks particular information about you. It asks a few questions like, where have you served before? What are your gifts and abilities and talents? And what are your hobbies that you may think are insignificant to the kingdom? Because I can guarantee you, 
they may not be. And on the back of the card, there's a list of places where you can check to learn more about the ministries of our church. And we're gonna put this information in a database so that when the Lord brings to our attention a need in our church, a need in our community, a need in our world, we'll have a tangible way to know who within this congregation has identified as someone who has a passion for that area of ministry and service and opportunity. So this is for every single member of this church. If you have been around this church for ages and you're like, everybody knows what I do around here, well, yes, we may, but we need it on paper. We need you to fill out a card, place it at the mobilization station today. And then this week, you're gonna look for an electronic version of this card that will be sent to all members as we really attempt to shore up our efforts to mobilize the love of God in the name of Christ. Now, last week, it was a fantastic week for the heart of this pastor. Can I tell you the most compelling thing that I saw? I looked around and I saw my church and my members taking ownership over their church, signing up in every conceivable way. All of our ministry opportunities and mission opportunities that we made available, there were signatures on every table saying we are interested in learning how we can be a part, a deeper, more integral part of the ongoing work of God here among us. There were some people who signed up for the very first time. There were some people who had already been volunteering, but because they heard about the need in the nursery, our growing nursery needs, there were two members who were already on rotation who doubled their commitment to go twice a month so that we can meet the needs of families who are bringing their babies to church. There was one couple who showed up, and it was their second time on campus. They had only been to 6910 McGinnis Ferry Road two times. This was their second visit to church, and they said to one of our pastors, we're brand new here, but we can do something. Now, there's something powerful about that kind of ownership in a church. That's what real growth looks like because we are now in a season of rebounding from this post-COVID, post-chaos, post-unpleasantness that we just went through the last two, three, four years. And I wanna tell you that the mark of a truly healthy church in the post-whatever era is a church that's filled with members who come to church not for something they get out of it, but in order to be a part of something bigger than themselves to serve and be a part of something that God may be up to. But I gotta tell you, I was really delighted because last week, Sue Chin is here in our choir. Man, Sue Chin is everywhere. She's like Santa Claus. I think, I think, I can't be sure that Sue Chin, I think, signed up for like everything. Like every one of the 33 tables, she's like, children, okay, production, I can do that. Greeters, yeah, I need somebody to cut the grass. I'm your girl, you know. We need to paint the steeple, give me a brush, right? And I gotta tell you, when I see a church member love their church like that, it inspires the heart of this pastor. I love how you love your church, Sue. And I got to thinking last week about it reminds me a little bit about a verse of scripture. You mind if I talk a little scripture this morning? 
In the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter, the eighth verse, we hear these words, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. There's something powerful about that phrase, here am I, send me, because that phrase is everything that this whole sermon series has attempted to be. In this sermon series that I've been calling Available, we've simply been trying to marvel at the reality that we can become available to the God who has already become available to us in Jesus Christ. What greater mystery could there be that the God of the ages has chosen not just to make God's self available to you know, humankind, that's a given, but to be made available to you. And the greater mystery of all is that in God's divine availability to you, God desires to invite, to include, to call you, to join with God in the holy work of redeeming and repairing and reconciling a broken world. Could anything be more beautiful than that? And I can't think of a message that is more needed today than this kind of message because we are living at a time where I see in every direction human beings who, as Thoreau said, are living lives of quiet desperation and we move through life in kind of a catatonic state in which we live with this kind of low-grade fever of disappointment a kind of chronic disillusionment with life to where we wonder, is there ever gonna be a day in which I wake up and actually want to wake up? Will there ever be a purpose beyond me that is worth signing on to? And I'm telling you that woven into the very fabric of what it means to be human and what it means to be in relationship with God is this glorious mystery that God wants you to join with God in the most extraordinary work you could ever imagine, loving people back to God. And you might be here today hearing this and and you might with all your heart want to be available to God. And you may be desiring to make your life available in such a way that it has meaning and you join God with what God's up to around you, but you don't know where to begin. I think that this passage that we have in front of us this morning has something to say to you. It's the same passage that concludes with that verse I just read, uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send me. But before Isaiah got to that place of extraordinary availability, something had to happen on the interior of him that I believe must happen on the interior of all of us. Can we begin reading in Isaiah chapter six, verse one? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, 
High and lofty and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. Can we stop there for just a moment? Now, if ever there were a passage of scripture that sounded like Bible, that kind of sounds like Bible, doesn't it? I mean, you got houses filled with smoke and the, the train, the hem of the garment all through the house, flying seraphs singing holy, holy, holy. That sounds like Bible. It's what we refer to in scripture as a, as a theophany. Theophany is a word that we describe a theological experience. The theological experience is an encounter with God. There are theophanies all through the scripture. And typically, a theophany in the Bible includes particular meteorological phenomena, like wind and smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and the earth trembling beneath your feet. And I think about Moses on the mountain with God. I think about Elijah hiding for his life in the cave. I think about the disciples frightened on a stormy sea and the Lord comes and all these meteorological phenomena accompany a sighting of God, an encounter with God that in this case in particular was multi-sensory. Every conceivable human sense is stimulated by an encounter with God. Now listen, if I had time this morning... If I had time this morning, I would talk to you about a multi-sensory God. If I had time, I'd talk about a God who would so wire us with five particular senses to process all of life's information that God will come to us in each and every one of our senses to capture our attention. You don't see me, see if you can hear me. You can't hear me, see if you can feel me. I mean, if I had some time this morning, I'd talk a little bit about how God uses our senses to call us to our senses. But we don't have time for that sermon. That's another day. Suffice it to say this morning that all this is going on around Isaiah, but what's key, what's, what's pivotal in this, this scripture is not what's going on around Isaiah so much as what is going on within Isaiah, he'd been to the temple a thousand times, but this time was different. It's possible to go to church Sunday after Sunday and it's all the same, all the same, all the same, and then someday lights just come on and you see the world differently. He had come to the temple for years and years, but this time he is completely overwhelmed by this multi-sensory overload of the presence and power of the majesty of God's holy presence. I mean, he sees the hymn of his garment. He hears the seraphs singing. He, he smells the smoke 
in the room. He feels the trembling beneath the pivots of the threshold on the floor. He, in a little while, we'll read in just a moment how a hot coal touches his lips and he tastes and sees that the Lord is good. He'd been there a thousand times, but this time was different. This time, he sensed the overwhelming power of the presence of God like he has never seen before. Now, I don't want us to lose this. This passage that concludes with that glorious phrase, here am I, send me, begins with Isaiah being overwhelmed by the presence of God becoming available begins in the presence of God. Becoming available begins by spending time in the presence of God. You cannot become available to God without spending deliberate time in the presence of God. We have a word for that, we call it worship in which you gather in a moment to acknowledge there is none among us more worthy than this one. And this one is the only one worthy to achieve or receive all of my mind's attention, all of my heart's affection, and in that connection, that deliberate attentiveness to the presence of God, something happens. When you are attentive to the presence of God, you begin to recognize some things about the nature of God, about the character of God, about the way of God. To the extent that in time, the more time you spend in the presence of God, the more you become aware of what that presence looks like in the world around you. In fact, I may even say it this way, the degree to which you spend time in the presence of God will determine the degree to which you recognize that presence when it shows up in the world around you. And the degree to which you recognize that presence in the world around you is the degree to which you hear the call of that presence that is around you. And the degree to which you hear the call is the degree to which you answer. Now when we talk about Worship and being in the presence of God. Let me be clear, you have never not been in the presence of God. If you are in this universe, you are in God. You as a holy piece of stardust, just like all the other particles of this universe, have come from God and are going to God and you are in the presence of God in this very moment. You have never been separate from God except in your imagination. (laughs) But what I'm talking about is deliberate attentiveness where you choose to carve out some time to be in worship before the one who made you. Now there is public worship and there's private worship and we could talk all day long. If I had some time, I'd talk a little bit about public worship and about how this moment is important to us. And if I had some time, I might talk to our parents today, to parents with young children. And I would say to you that there is nothing, nothing, nothing more important as a task in raising your children than teaching them the love of the Lord and the need to gather with the Lord's church in worship. I'm gonna tell you something. You, it's important, yeah, find the good school for them. It's important, get them a good 
batting coach. Yeah, it's important to get them a good dance instructor to do the things they love to do, but I'm telling you, there is nothing you can do to shape their faith than to make them get here on Sunday morning. But you don't understand, sometimes it's kind of long and boring. Yeah, I know. Sometimes they're kind of groggy in the morning because we had a late night. I know. Well, sometimes we have kind of practice right after church, and, and so we figure we don't want them to go to practice tired. Psh. Listen, you want to talk about the toughness of getting somebody to, to church in the morning? Talk to my wife, will you? She has a hard time getting me to church every week. No, I'm kidding. No. For a whole married life, she's been a single mom on Sunday morning, single-handedly getting those kids. You want to talk to preacher's kids about the desire to come to church or not? We can say a thing or two about what it means to teach them the holy task, the holy and sacred task of getting your butt in the car. We're going to church. And I say that because, follow me on this, it's not just a guilt trip, I'm telling you parents, because here's what happens, they gather here and they're around other people who are just trying to make it. And they grow up seeing people who are just trying to be forgiven, trying to be put back together, trying to find a little hope for one more week at a time, and in the midst of that, they themselves are learning something about the character, the nature, the way of this God. And in the presence of that God, they grow up learning to recognize the presence of that God in their life. And the degree to which your children learn to recognize the presence of God in their life is the degree to which they hear the call of God on their lives. And we could talk about public worship, but we could talk about private worship because whether you're talking about coming to church or just getting up in the morning a little early to make sure you spend some time because every day there must be some time where it's just you and the one who made you so that in that holy moment of solitude with your Lord, you spend enough time with the Lord to recognize the character of the Lord so that you can recognize that presence in the world around you and suddenly when you begin doing that, the world around you begins to change. It never really changes but you begin to see the world around you differently. Suddenly, there is no longer secular parts of my world and sacred parts. The more time you spend with God, you begin to realize there is no such thing as secular. That the whole thing is saturated with God. In 1874, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, to a person who lives unto God, nothing is secular, everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it's a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it's a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense, his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say, this is sacred and this is secular is, to my mind, <laughs> diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel, right? At some point, the whole thing is sacred. 
And if the whole thing is sacred, now I understand a little bit better why it is that when Isaiah showed up for church that day, like it does every week, he shows up and he says, on the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw, my eyes were, I saw the Lord. And it occurs to me why he believed the seraphs when he heard them singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Beloved, you want to make yourself more available to God, spend time with God. Because the degree to which you spend time in worship with God is the degree to which you recognize the holy presence of God in the world all around you. So all of a sudden you begin to see that God is not just at church. God is in the vulnerable, in the poor, in the oppressed. God is in the brokenhearted. God is in that crisis that you want to avoid with all of your heart. You begin to hear the degree to which you see the presence of God in the world around you is the degree to which you hear the call of God. And the degree to which you hear the call of God is the degree to which you become available to God. You tracking with me? So what happens next? He comes and has this multi-sensory overload of the presence of God and he's convinced that all the earth is filled with God. I can't get away from this God. Then what happens? We pick up in verse three, and or verse five, and I said, whoa. You know, sometimes when I read this story from Isaiah, I like to just stop mid-sentence. He sees all this that he saw, and I said to myself, whoa. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by the presence of the holy that you had no words? Ever been to one of the rims of the Grand Canyon and breathlessly you look and have no words to describe what you're seeing, and you're like, whoa. I saw it in the labor and delivery rooms of my sons as they came into life and took their first breath, I'm like, whoa. (laughs) I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. But I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Don't tell Laura I did that. Sometimes there are no words. Yet he goes on, he says, woe is me. I am lost. I love what the other translations say here in this text. It's not just, woe is me, I am lost. Woe is me, I am ruined. Woe is me, I am doomed. Woe is me, I am undone. Or I love what my Hebrew professor years ago said when he translates this passage. He goes, woe is me, I'm a goner. You cannot draw close to the holiness of God in all of his divine presence and not become aware. I could be a goner. But he continues. And why does he feel like he's a goner? Because of these words. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it 
and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. You cannot gather close to the holy presence of God without simultaneously becoming aware of who you are. Because when you do gather in the presence of God, when you come to worship and you fix your attention on him and give your affection to him and there is a sense in which you are, you are fixed on, on the, the beauty, the majesty, the glory of God, in the presence of God, you learn some things about the character of God, how holy, how just, how beautiful, how loving, how kind, how strong, how consistent, how patient he is, but simultaneously, as you are becoming gradually more and more aware of the character of his beauty, you become simultaneously aware of the absence of all those things in yourself. And how unholy, how impatient I am. And suddenly, the closer you draw to him, there, there's like a keen light shone upon your true character. And now everything is exposed. And I, I see in the context of his perfection, my imperfection. I see in the context of his, his glory, the inglorious nature of me. And now I'm mindful of all my sins and all my patterns and all the ways in which I have blown it in this life. I am a man of unclean lips and and I'm among a people of unclean lips. And then you would think that Isaiah, standing there in the midst of the glory of God, recognizing his own sinfulness, you would think that his answer to God's question would be thanks but no thanks. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Not me. Because I see you in all of your glory, your holiness. I see you in all of your goodness and purity and love. And I know me. And you don't, you don't want somebody like me. Trust me. You don't want somebody like me. Because I can put on a pretty good face for a little while. And, I, and I, can, I, can, I can fool everybody for a good three, four days, maybe a week tops, but in time they find me out and the whole time I find me out and in time you're gonna find me out. I am not the one you need. Don't send me. but that's not what he says. Something else happens. Look closer. And I said, woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs and the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. I love that phrase, your sin is blotted out. In Hebrew, it literally means it is covered over. It's as if in the context of God's perfection, Isaiah comes to recognize his imperfection, his failures, his shortcomings, and God says, yeah, I know. I know that 
you're not much. I've seen your patterns and I know you try and you do well for a while and you fall on your face. I know. And I see you get back up and I see you try again and it breaks my heart because you fall on your face again. But I've got you covered. He purifies him and covers all of his sins. Beloved, when you spend time with Christ, I promise you that Christ will absolutely reveal to you all the ugly parts of you, all the parts you're embarrassed about, all the parts you don't want anybody to find out about. Christ will reveal those things to you. Christ is the God who, when we confront this particular God, he's the one who makes us confront ourselves. And I promise you, Christ will reveal to yourself, to you, all that is wrong and imperfect and imbalanced in you, but it's not for your condemnation. It is for your transformation. Because something else that happens when we are in the company of Christ, something else that happens when we choose to deliberately enter the presence of God is that we are transformed by grace. We are transformed by grace. And all the stuff that you think is not enough in you, well, you're right. But suddenly, God covers all that you think is missing. And it's like when I talk to young couples who get married and we talk in premarital counseling, I even use it in the ceremony uh, recently. I, I use it these days. I say, look, your goal is not to become a great husband and a great wife. Your goal is not to somehow draw closer to each other and just fall in love more and more your whole life. That'll all take care of itself. Your goal is to pursue Christ with all your heart. Because if you pursue Christ with all your heart and every day seek some time to spend in the presence of Christ, I promise some things will happen. You will fix your eyes on the loveliness of his character his grace, his beauty, his patience, his compassion. And in the context of fixing your eyes on all that that is in him, you will become simultaneously aware of the absence of all those things in you. And you will suddenly become aware that I am impatient, I am unkind, I am selfish, I am self-focused, I am arrogant, I am rude. And then you'll begin to despise those parts of you that are not Christ-like. And in time, all of those things begin to melt away as you are transformed by his grace one day at a time, more and more into the holy image of Christ. And then, with Christ living in you, you produce all this fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, and that fruit that grows out of the Christ in you will be the fruit that your spouse gets to eat all his or her life long. Yeah. Isaiah knew that all the earth was full of the holy presence of God, and Isaiah knew that there was nothing much holy in himself, but Isaiah also knew that God has a way of overcoming our shortcomings. This is why it's been said that God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. 
It's not like there's a short list of highly qualified people God is after and God interviews these people to do the things that God is up to in the world. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And who are the called? You and I are the called. You and I are the called. If you have a heartbeat, you are called. If you have breath in your lungs, you are called. If you know of someone who is sick, who is alone, who is broken, who has been forgotten, who has been thrown away. If you know of a need, you are the called. And on your way to meet the need, God qualifies you as you go. That's why I've been saying this whole series long that the call of God will never lead you where the grace of God will not sustain you. That means when Isaiah comes to the question at the end of this experience, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's only one answer he can give. Here am I. Send me. There's no detail about where he's going. There's no who, how, what, where, when. How long will it take? How will we know when we get there? None of those details are put out there. But because Isaiah now implicitly trusts the God whose glory is in all the earth. He doesn't need to know. And neither do you. If you know of a need today, then you know your calling. And the only answer is here am I. 